little bit of what we've talked about. Um, and it means even in today's one, we'll be going back to Genesis uh, to look at why it's important, why the last part, the last two verses, uh, sorry, three verses, can't count, six verses uh, of our reading uh, relates to and why it's important we start at the beginning to understand what Jesus is saying here. So it's Matthew 7, 24 to 29, the wise and foolish builder. My hope really is is to uh, that we understand ultimately when we come to look at this. Yes, we follow Jesus' commands. We follow the commands that God has laid down. But those commands are summarized in two particular things. Love for God, first and foremost, absolutely. Love for God. And then second, love our neighbor. Those are the first two, and the only two, actually. Jesus says, this is how all the laws hang on. All the laws hang on these two commands. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor. That's effectively the gospel. That's what it is. So that's what we're kind of bringing to a close today is why Jesus did the Sermon on the Mount. And these two verses will help us to do that. So let's get straight in. Uh, Matthew 7, 24 to 29. Uh, what does it say? What does it say? Um, 24 to 27, we'll begin with. And then we'll look at the, the other two verses. But it says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock the rain came down the streams rose the winds blew and beat against that house yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock but everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand the rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Jesus illustrates in his last section of his Sermon on the Mount. It's good to know, by the way, that he didn't call it the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, he didn't come up and start saying, here is my Sermon on the Mount. It's what we call it because he happened to do a sermon on a mount. Okay, So just so we're clear, you probably know that already, but I needed to be clear that we call it the Sermon on the Mount because of the situation that he's actually in. And it is literally a sermon. We talk about, I think we even talk about Peter doing his sermon and we say this is a great sermon. Yet Jesus's sermon has to be the best sermon of all. Has to be. No matter how good Peter was, this is a great sermon. But here Jesus illustrates that the two builders built houses that looked the same from the outside. What he's conveying is that the difference in these two houses is the foundation they're built on and if they can stand the test of the storms. Uh, a storm is what we see today, is the ultimate in nature. It's God created power, he's done that. And Jesus warns his audience that their lives, using this house analogy, will be put to the test. So, of course, we can take this of all the storms and the winds and the rain. It puts us to the test in our faith. What will we do in these times? What foundation do we have when we have these testing times? What he tells them is that obviously that which is built on a firm foundation will hold strong. In other words, the foundation will not move, so the house will not wash into the sea. Pretty obvious statement. It's a great, uh, probably 101 of architecture, I imagine, is that building on a rock is probably the best place to start rather than building on sand. And so it's contrast with a house that's on a soft foundation. That being sand will in fact wash away very quickly. 
as fast as the sand washes away, so too uh, will that house. The point that Jesus is making, especially as he is summing up what he has already said to them, is that he simply is simply not enough to have heard what Jesus said. It's not enough to have just heard things that he has said to us, to even this audience that he has in front of him right now. What Jesus has said through the word without uh, then it convicting us to do something about it uh, is, is in fact building on sand. What Jesus is saying is that when trials come in life, if we're not doers, if we don't practice what we hear, in the principle of being changed, convicted by the word of God, then just hearing the words Jesus said will not be enough to sustain through these times. Um, I've often said this, Jesus is not a morality teacher. He's not, he's not a morality teacher. He's not teaching, do these good things and you'll do well in life. Uh, this is a bigger spiritual principle of whether you will go to heaven and be with God forever or go to hell if you don't believe in him. He's, he's very clear this isn't like those other ones that came before him uh, that we know through history, through actual proven historical account that many people came before him and claimed to be the Messiah. And people came after him and still do today and claim to be the Messiah. This is our spiritual eternity with God. And then he says in 28 and 29, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. His audience couldn't help but notice that Jesus taught with an authority lacking in the teachers of the day. Other teachers were often only quoted other rabbis, for instance, and they kept this. It's like a, it's a really interesting way they did it in order to keep the power dynamic for themselves. What they did was they quoted one another in order that they would look authoritative when in fact what they're doing is, is they're, they're bending and twisting the law. Uh, and so that continued. And, and in fact, that does continue today as well. There are people that claim to set up uh, places where you can study the word and in fact what they're doing is they're not strictly accredited and what they do is they, they affirm one another all these kind of churches big churches get together they affirm one another and actually what they're really doing is teaching one another's view on scripture rather than actually looking to scripture and saying what does it mean what does what is God saying out of scripture so we have here historical uh, fact that actually uh, rabbis are, are quoting one another and they're kind of just keeping this amongst themselves so that they're keeping the power, not wanting to enable others to live to Jesus. What people were amazed at was the way Jesus spoke with inherent authority, the authority of God's revealed word. And we'll, we'll take a look at that. What Jesus did was to show this important principle in trusting God's word for sound, unshakable truth. Whenever God's word is presented as it truly is, with its inherent power, it will astonish people. It will amaze people. It will set itself apart from the mere opinions of man. That is the difference. That's how we know things are different when people say certain things about the Bible. Is it an opinion or is it actually from the word itself? Does it say, does the, the person who's teaching say what is said in the word? That's how we know. We know because they affirm Jesus and say he is God. So <clears throat> what's the meaning and application as we look into this? Uh, I was doing my research and study for this sermon and 
came across a, a quite clever title in an article. It's not strictly related to this message, uh, but it was actually about the disciples in Acts um, and the world in which they would need to share the gospel. Uh, and, and in fact, it's really what Jesus is doing is enabling people who he's teaching to go and do that later on. Uh, but the title of this article in particular was The Rock in a World of Sand. And I thought, that's amazing. I, I like that because it suggests that the rock has always been there and the sand is around it. The sand has kind of grew and it moves around and the rock, though, never moves. The rock stays exactly in the same place. Yet if you go to the seaside, you go to the beach, what you'll find is that the sea will lap up on the sand and the sand will draw away and more and more water and it draws more and more sand away and it keeps moving and coming back all the time, whereas the rock never seems to move. And I thought this is a, a great title. So today I wanted to speak about this sort of principle of the solid rock foundation. What, what, what is it? And I want to tell you where it came from, how to know the difference between the rock and the sand. And so when we understand that, when we then we'll understand why people he was talking to were amazed. And I think this title then applies uh, much to what we're looking at today, especially with this analogy of Jesus using building on rock and sand. And of course, uh, you can't go uh, out without this particular sermon about looking at some pictures of houses built in rocks and houses built on sand. This is uh, quite some architectural feat uh, that I'm showing you. There's, there's obviously houses that are built on rocks. Uh, these built into the rock, uh, which I can, I can think it will never move, ever. That house is not moving. Same, same with this one too. They've got this one that was built across two, uh, well, I suppose mountains in a way, uh, and then it's straddling both and it, they're dug into steel columns into the rock. That thing is never moving. That's not moving. As opposed to this one that will move because oddly on the, what were you looking at? The right of the picture, that's where it used to be. That house used to be on the right of the picture. Uh, and what the sea did, and obviously building on sand is probably not very wise, uh, what they then did is the sea came in and then it washed it all away because the tide was high and all the things we're seeing now, rising sea levels, and of course, that's what happens. I've got a personal example of this, actually. I, me and Dawn ha sort of go to Jamaica about once a year and we go and see our parents, and uh, they live high up in, not very high up on the mountain, but they live on the mountain. They've built a house there. Uh, and it's, it's sort of the lower side of the Blue Mountains. So on the Blue Mountains, they, they produce coffee, amazing coffee. It's the best in the world, apparently. That's not, I'm, I'm not being biased. Uh, that's what they say. Blue Mountain coffee is the best coffee in the world. Uh, and so much so they trade it for parts and cars and things with, with other countries. Uh, but they've built this house on, on this, on effectively a rock on the mountainside. These steel columns were, were built in, were drilled into the, to the rock. That thing's not moving. doesn't matter how much wind is going to hit that, that thing's not moving. Then, only a few years ago, there was people who decided to build a hotel and some houses almost literally on the seafront near them, which is just sort of quite a, a way down. But guess what happened when Jamaica had its hurricane season? Yeah, it got pretty ruined. They were selling those plots to people and people bought them up, uh, which was entirely just unwise completely, considering the fact that uh, when, when, I, when we speak to Dawn's parents, they tell us where the sea level used to be. 
uh, tell us where the sea was before uh, we we before uh, today and they say it was so far out there was so much more land before you the sea got to us uh, and so what you find now is that actually there's not much land left uh, not certainly not much sand left uh, even on low tide so it happens today that we're unwise in where we build our houses uh, and so what you find is that the hotel gets washed out all those people's houses get washed out sadly uh, and pretty much the town small small village gets almost completely washed out so i kind of have a personal not experience myself but i've, I've been i think in at least one hurricane uh, and been around when it's happened it, it's not great um and a lot of terrible things happen uh, uh, as a result of a small island in in fact compared to maybe america back to the sermon <laughs> back to the message there's an understanding I think we can glean from the Sermon on the Mount that if nothing else, only God and his word is everlasting. Only God uh, and his word will stand the test of time, the test of rain, the test of wind, the test of whatever nature will throw at it. God will stand. What Jesus came to do was to fill, fulfill that which was set down long ago. Despite what would happen by the hands of humans, God has always and will always fulfill the purpose and plan that he has made from the beginning. Whether people were compliant, open to, or indifferent, or set against God entirely, God would use whatever person and whoever they were to fulfill his plan. God uses anyone and everyone. Believe it or not, we've seen that in the Bible. If you read your Bible, you know that that's true. So to understand this concept of building on rock, not on sand... We can look back to creation itself. <clears throat> I'm trying to think if I have a picture of what I'm about to tell you, but I don't think I do. But it, I, I, I've got this amazing research that was done about the creation of the earth. And I think it's just, when you, when you hear it, it's one of those things you go, oh, they're nearly there, aren't they? They're nearly going to understand how the world was made. They're getting there. The scientists are getting there. And God's going, yeah, but I've already got there. <laughs> I created it already. I'm there already. And they're going, yeah, okay, well, let's go through all the other theories first, and well, eventually we'll get there. And it's really promising research, by the way. It's from NASA. But let me read the, the, the context of what we're going to look at. Genesis 1, 1 to 10. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness, God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. God called the vault sky, and there was evening, and there was morning, the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land and the gathered waters he called seas and god saw that it was good the part that's important is is the part where this the land appears it's the moment where land makes its appearance where god makes land appear what's well, actually more akin to is that is land that was actually covered by water and darkness in effect the land that became dry land was actually dormant underwater. It was actually originally underwater. Uh, and so the water covered uh, the land initially and then 
effectively what he'd done. He, he, he moved the water, as it were. I don't know how it actually happened because I wasn't there. Uh, but he moved the water and the land appeared from under the water and then it dried out and then it became land, which is, which is why we see the dry ground appear. It doesn't, he already created it and he brings it up out from under the water. And that's always been said scientifically is that the earth was this dry rock. It began as a dry rock and the water came from meteorites and meteorites hit this rock and it started, the meteorites created the water. So the, uh, effectively that what, what happened is as the meteorites hit, water started developing on this rock, what we call earth today. Uh, and, and that's a common uh, perception of what happened, uh, showing that, that this rock had, had started hitting this earth. But in more recent times, which is really promising, uh, scientists have said that the ingredients to form water were already bound up in the rock. They were already formed in the earth. And when you read that, just that first bit, yeah, we know. That's what we've been trying to tell you. It's already been there. Because it says it in Genesis. It says it. Anyway. So there's this, uh, I haven't got her name. She's a uh, cos cosmic chemist uh, is her title. And she had a team, and she's from NASA, by the way, so she's not some, like, kooky, out-there kind of scientist who's, like, Bible-bashing or whatever you want to call them. Uh, this is a person who is NASA-appointed and very important and very well-respected in the scientific community. They analyzed these 13 rare meteorites that came from the remnants of rock that actually orbited the Earth at the time, uh, orbited the solar system, effectively, uh, when it was very young, before the planets actually formed. Uh, and these meteorites are made up of the kind of rock believed to have formed Earth. So what they're saying is instead of this, you had the, the Earth formed in its basic uh, before we were living on it, uh, they, instead of meteorites hitting that and then creating the water through their various chemicals, they're saying that actually in the formation of that rock was water contained within them. This is going to be... It, uh, it will make it will make it will make sense when we get there. Just just listen carefully. The scientists said that at least three times the amount of water in the Earth's ocean can be provided by these very meteorites that formed the Earth itself. So now we're saying that it's not meteorites that hit the Earth that formed the water that made the water happen. We're saying that in its formation, it already had water in it. So well, this is this is I'm seeing what's in Genesis here, and this looks a bit familiar. In these rocks that were formed the Earth was hydrogen. And the researchers found the hydrogen signature in the meteorites. It matched that of rocks found in the layer of the Earth called the mantle. So you've got three, my basic terrible geography, uh, is that you've got, the, you've got the outer crust, you've got the mantle, you've got the inner and then the center, which is where the heat is generated. So you've got all the inner mantle, which is always moving around. Uh, and part of this mantle is where the... Uh, water came from so the water kind of maybe rose up or went down it it's hard to tell because we're in space right we've got no up or down left or right but what they found was that rocks in the mantle contain a lot of oxygen they band up with minerals which can then be released in the certain cir uh, circumstances they combine with hydrogen and then form water not great maybe the bible send the truth about how the world was formed all this to say, God built the earth on a rock. 
It started with a rock. It's important because it has a bigger ramification about what God has done in order to show that we can trust in an unchangeable rock-solid God. At Psalm 104, verse 5, he set the earth on its foundations, it can never be moved. Throughout the whole of the Bible, there's this constant reference to solid foundation. You'll find it in most places in the Bible, there's some element, some pointing to God's solidness, trustworthiness, that uh, particularly in this verse, he set the earth on its foundation, it can never be moved, never be changed. He did it. What God has done in terms of laying the foundations in the living word, the Bible, is sufficient. From the beginning, God had a plan to always bring mankind to himself. Whether people are believers or not, now we are all people that started out this way. We all started out as people who were given grace. We all started out from the beginning of people who were given grace by God. None of us were capable of doing anything good. Romans 3 verse 10 to 12 says, as it's written, there's no one righteous, not even one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned away. They've together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. But what covers every single person, believer or not, right now, until Jesus returns at the very least, is grace. Grace is available right now. You're, you're breathing and living grace right now, whether you're a believer or not. Grace and mercy itself is kind of the pause until Jesus returns. And God graciously holds back the coming wrath until Jesus comes back. But now grace and mercy on its own, great foundations to begin with, they're not sufficient to be saved. Meaning that grace and mercy is the means God uses in order that we might recognize our sinful nature, turn from sin and come to him. He uses this display of power, of being able to hold back, yes, his own wrath, but he holds it back because Jesus has not yet returned. But that grace and mercy is not going to save us in salvation. It is not salvific uh, grace, as it were. We are operating in common mercy, common grace. Romans 3, verse 19 to 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced uh, and the whole world held accountable to God. Come on. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. So grace and mercy is this, just this massive mirror that just shows you not just, not just to how you look today, but literally how you actually look to God. And when you look in this mirror, it, it tells you you're, we're all this, this terrible mess with sinful, broken people. But it's not there to, to condemn us forever because it's meant to bring us a realisation that we can come to Jesus. Grace and mercy is an amazing revelation of our true self. What the Lord does is reveal our depth of sin. But the law itself can do no more than that. It can't save us. You can't earn that salvation. Works of the law cannot save us from sin. 
In God's sight, we're not justified by the works of the law. So after the flood in Noah's time, God instituted grace and mercy. Remember, he said, no more. He won't do that again. He won't ever flood the earth again. Grace and mercy, that is. And yet not long after that, what happens? Again, people rebel. Again, people want to go against God. That's grace and mercy on a level I don't think we truly understand. God has every right to flood this earth right now. Every right. He made it. It's his. But since that time and after Christ's ascension to the Father, God's used grace and mercy to provide a way out of the condemnation under the law through Jesus Christ. Romans 3, 21 to 26. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. This is where we start to understand what it is to not just hear, but to do. And even so, it is not to do the law. It is not to live legally by what has been laid down because Jesus then says what this law did, what it all hangs on, what it, what it is crucially hanging on is love for God. If you love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, if you love your neighbor, you want them to be saved. Guess what? That's fulfillment because <laughs> Jesus done it. And he said, if you do this, you'll want to do this. If you love your God with all your heart, with every being of your soul, you're going to want to do this. You're going to want to serve him. You're going to want to be right in his eyes. And yet what feels contradictory, he says, but you can't fulfill the law. You can't do it. So that's why he says it's because of love. Your love for him is what matters. So you might be saying, where am I going with this? What am I doing? I'm trying to summarize what Jesus has said through the whole of the Sermon on the Mount. We talked about all sorts of different laws and different things that Jesus said, you must follow my commands. You must do this and you must do that. But what we need to know is how do we tell if we're building a faith on the foundation of rock or a foundation of sand. What we're doing here is laying the foundation of faith. You can't speak about Jesus without going back to where? To the beginning. So often now you will find, unfortunately, that New Testament is taught almost exclusively. And yet if you only stay in the New Testament, you will not understand the reason for Jesus being sent to die on the cross and to die for our sins. You will not get it. 
you will not understand. The Old Testament is so important in establishing the sinful brokenness of all of us that when you understand what happened there and then you see the New Testament and then you see Jesus, you're ever more grateful for what Jesus did. The problem with staying in just the New Testament preaching is that we'll never learn Jesus came. And yes, we can read it in the text, we can read it in the gospel. But the powerful impact of reading what people did in the Old Testament, of what we would do, you cannot take away from the power of the Old Testament. It is the foundations of faith. It helps us to understand who we're trusting in. Helps us to understand, and we're not doing it on our own understanding. But God's clear and present truth in the written word of the Bible and the living word of Christ. And now here is where we start to move towards this point of the sand and the rock. Romans 3, verse 27 says, where then is boasting? It is excluded because of the law. Sorry, because of what law? The law that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount was speaking to people who were being misled by those who told them that law-keeping in itself is the way to be right in the eyes of God. And let me stress this, the Pharisees and the scribes were teaching that law-keeping in itself, on its own, was the way to be righteous in the eyes of God. That's what they were teaching. But Paul says... Just as Jesus already said, that it is on the rock-solid foundation of the word of faith found in Jesus Christ that we will remain steadfast and true in salvation. The Lord will merely show you how bad we are. Jesus comes and saves us from the condemnation of which we deserve, by the way. Ephesians 2, verse 8 to 9 says, for it is by grace you've been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. It's great there's continuity throughout the whole Bible. No one contradicts anyone. It's probably the only book written where no one is contradicting anyone else, where the teaching of Jesus Christ is completely consistent all the way through. He then continues, Romans 3, 28 to 30, for we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too. Since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Whether Jew or Gentile, Salvation is not based on law-keeping. But instead it is by grace of God, through faith in Jesus, that we are saved. Paul uses the example of circumcision to emphasise that whatever you abide by, whatever law, what was in the law, or, or, or whatever act you do, tradition you follow, it means nothing unless it is by faith in Jesus Christ first and foremost. Listen, we are beings that will do things in some form of tradition in some way. 
that we can't, kind of can't get away from. We have our own little traditions, we have our own thing where we, we think it's to worship God, and I'm sure it is. But here is the important thing. Above all of that, above all of those things, is it that you have faith in Jesus Christ? Because all those acts or traditions mean nothing if faith isn't there. For my salvation, do I trust in him or do I trust in my acts? Do I trust in my tradition or do I trust in Jesus? So, of course, Paul then answers another question in the extreme to the law of faith. So they go the other way now. So he's answering it in the other direction. And they say this in Romans 3.31. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? So this is the twisting. It's an example of the twisting that was going on. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Can I, in other words, can I do what I like? I now have the law of faith. I don't have the law of old. So that must mean it nullifies it, right? No. In fact, we uphold the law, he says, by doing that. Can you do two of them? Can you uphold the law without, with realising that you can't fulfil the law? Let me explain. He says, it's because by faith in Jesus Christ we are saved. Trusting in him and him alone means we uphold the law by the law of faith. By trusting in him, in that very act, you are upholding the law of God. Does this make sense? I don't need to go line one. What do I need to do? Have I done that? One, two, three. That's not, that's not fulfilling. It's not upholding the law. I uphold the law by trusting in Jesus for the fulfillment of that law. And so I'm upholding it by trusting in Jesus to uphold it. That's how it works. That's how you're free from the law. Does this, this make sense? You're only free from the law because you trust in Jesus who has made a way by faith to do so. Who in turn has fulfilled the law and so upholds it. You know Romans is messy from our point of view sometimes, right? We look at it and think, oh my word, what is he saying? He says, don't do this, but then yes, do that. Do that and then don't do that. It actually makes sense. You need some time to spend with this, but it does make sense. Complete sense. Do you know why? It's God's word. Paul's talking utter complete sense. More importantly, the upholding of that law is not a cancellation of it. The law is not set aside, it's not abolished as if it was wrong. It's not as if God made a mistake and said, oh, those laws, they're a bit heavy, aren't they, guys? I'm going to cancel that for you. I'm just going to give you Jesus. Christ in his mercy toward us fulfilled the law on our behalf so we were not left condemned by it. Romans 7, 4-6 So my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what was once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in a new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Now, what people do here is they go, oh, what Paul's saying is that he's saying that the law is now redundant, that it's dead, that actually it has been cancelled. 
not in the old way of the written code. He's simply saying that you cannot do live the old way of the written code. But through Jesus, we can. You've been released from that, and so you serve in the spirit and not in the flesh. You don't work and earn your salvation. You, you believe in Jesus through the spirit, and so you don't do the old way of the old law. You now live to Christ, not live to the law. So as we live according to the Spirit, we're, we're able to uphold the law. Not that we're able to meet its requirements, but because we have faith in the one who can. Just remember what the point of the Sermon on the Mount was. In the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, this is what he said. And this is really important because this sets the, the whole, uh, that should have been Romans 8, verse 1 to 4. Sorry, I've jumped ahead a little bit. I've really jumped ahead. I'm sorry about that. Let me go back. This is, this is actually really important. So we're talking about not, not serving in the old way to fulfill the law. Now we're serving in the spirit. We're set free from the law in Christ for those who believe in him. Now because of that, we want to serve Christ as he's commanded us to do so. And guess what? We still want to do well. This is what he was challenging the, 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 the perception of those in Romans but they said, well, does that case it just set us free and do anything we like? He says, no. In fact, you'll want to do well. Not, not because you want to impress God, but because you just love him so much that you want to serve him. You have a heart for him. But I don't want that service, we, we don't want that service to become the how and why we're saved. So through faith, we're saved. And in that faith, we serve Jesus in the best way we can. Romans 8. Verse 1 to 4, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, this is really interesting. The law does not change. The law is just as perfect and good, even though we were unable to live to it. This is a really important point as you read, Karen, reading these verses. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering, and so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh but according to the spirit. The law is still good and perfect. The law in the Old Testament is still good and perfect because what it's doing and what it always was going to do was show us our need for Jesus. This is why you can't just rely on the New Testament as a way of learning about Jesus. You need to know that that was always going to be a way to show us our sin, to show us our need for him in the first place. So, we live according to the Spirit, upholding the law, not because of us, not through us, but because of Jesus. And so we come to the point of why the Sermon on the Mount what was its main thing? What, what was Jesus saying before he got into all the laws, before he got into any of the commands? Matthew 5, 17 to 20. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. 
Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Here is what it, where it all culminates. Here is where it all comes down to in the hearing and doing. We believe in Christ, but it does not give us a license to do as we please. To the extent that we intentionally break the law under some misguided view that God's grace is magnified if sin was all the more performed. In fact, what he says here in context is just before, obviously, he ascends to the Father. And until the work on the cross is done, this does stand. But then the work on the cross is done, and he's risen, and now the law's been fulfilled. Jesus does not say that one must keep the commandments in order to attain heaven. Part of what he's explaining is that human effort will never be good enough. And Jesus is clear that salvation comes by faith, not by good behavior. Why then would Jesus make this strong statement about not setting aside the laws of the Old Testament? It is that a full, complete understanding of the law cannot be undone or discarded. Christians are never meant to embrace the attitude that no rules apply at all. There's context to what Jesus is teaching. The teachings of Christ are never put forward as options for true believers. John 14, verse 15, if you love me, keep my commands. So here's where we understand the difference between hearing and doing. What does putting Christ's teachings into practice actually mean? Jesus says that his that, uh, obedience to his commands is the primary sign of our love for him. A person cannot claim to know Christ and hate other Christians, nor can someone claim to know Christ while discarding his teachings. The point, however, is not that believers are perfect. Far from it. Nor is the lesson here that good behavior earns or keeps one's salvation. Romans 11 verse 6 and if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. What it actually is, is that a self-labeled Christian who lives opposed to the message of Christ. And I found this example, uh, <laughs> well, it, I think it's helpful. It's like a meat-eating warmonger who claims to be a passive, pathicist. pacifists, it's the S and the F, you see, vegetarian, <laughs> pacifist, meat-eating warmonger who claims to be a pacifist vegetarian. I liked it when I read it in my head, but uh, reading it out loud is not so powerful, but um, it's hypocrisy, it's contradiction. So the right way to hear and do is it's only by the power of the Holy Spirit and believing that our righteousness is in Christ alone. That we will be able to uphold the law of God, not through deeds or works, not because we can do them really well, but by faith. That is why the crowd ended up being amazed. 
you understand what they've been told? They've been told, live by every single law and you must uphold it, even though they themselves were not doing it. Jesus says, the only way that's going to work is if you believe in me. So like, what? Well, hold on, what, just believe in you? Not actually do the things here that are listed in the old written code? Well, you achieve that by believing in the one who fulfilled them. That's why people are amazed. That's why, that's not what we've been taught, Jesus. We've been told something else. It's nothing like what they were told. Matthew 22, 36 to 40 says, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Which is, I'm going to read this question. Which is the greatest commandment in the law? Capital L. This is the law law. This is God's law, okay? It's where some people like to say, oh, Jesus is contradicting God. No, he's not. 37, Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. 38, this is the first and greatest commandment. You can take the 380-something laws of God, and he says, the first and greatest is to love the Lord your God. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Without these two commandments, the law is nothing to hang on. Do you, do you understand what that means? All the law, everything that God has written hangs on what Jesus just said. Everything. Without that, you can't do the law. You can't do anything. You're wasted. It's gone. There's, there's no hope for you, for you and me whatsoever. But he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and everything else hangs on that. Everything. This is why the crowd were amazed. These verses show what had been teaching all along. Everything they had known, everything they had been taught came down to two commandments. Love God with all your life. His command is that we walk in love. 2 John verse 6. Uh, it says one, but there's only one chapter in John. But 2 John 1 verse 6. And this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands. As you've heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. Then it says, love your neighbor as yourself. This is the doing. So this is the hearing partly doing because we want to love each other, love Jesus, and we love one another. Now we love one another, and now we do. James 2, 14, 17. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is a, if not accompanied by action, is dead. There's no contradiction in this. What James is not saying is that doing deeds will earn you salvation. He's merely saying the change of our hearts when we believe in Jesus will mean that we want to serve him because he wants to serve those who ultimately he wants to come to him. He's saying it can't happen. You can't have a faith, a true, genuine faith, unless something gets to your heart and says, there's, there's some outward proof of it. There's some outward action, some outward thing that you do that shows what you didn't do before. 
before you believed in him. Now you believe, I'm changed. I want to serve Jesus and I want him to be honoured and glorified. So here's what it comes down to. If we hear the word and it does nothing to change our behaviour or what we do, then it is a dead faith. Let me say this. When I'm talking about doing things, I'm not saying that you'll do them perfectly, that we'll do them in great, the best way possible, and everyone will be so impressed with us. In fact, we're not to be impressive. In fact, we're almost meant to be invisible in our service. But certainly to a degree that people will know that we are lovers of Christ. The difference between Christians and those who do good things is that we don't want anything for it. We don't need awards. We don't need special dinners. We don't need ceremonies. Our banquet is waiting for us in heaven. What genuine faith does is challenge us to not be the person we were before we came to Jesus. As Christians, our faith is on the rock-solid foundation of the Word and Christ himself. And that foundation is not of our doing, but what God has done from day one. Since what we now cannot do as believers in Christ is boast in something we now know we didn't make. We didn't call salvation to happen. We don't make it happen. So we can't boast that we did it. We boast in the one that did it. And so since that's unchangeable and cannot be moved, we serve in complete confidence that our God forever holds us in his hand. It's the comfort here that Jesus is bringing. Build your faith on rock-solid foundation. Don't build it on sand that will just wither away. Don't build it on, on hype and experience. Build it on the word of God. And I'm telling you, he will come through for every single person who puts their faith in him. I'm going to leave you with this verse, and we're going to worship. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. It's so anti-world. It's so anti-unbelief that I will tell everyone and boast to everyone how terrible and weak I am, but in order that Christ may be glorified. That's the challenge. Can we put ourselves aside? Can we build our faith on the rock and not on ourselves? That's the challenge for us every single day. Let's pray and then let's worship together.